Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. I first read about Sister Alethea back in May of this year. She was in a New York Times profile entitled, Meet the Nun Who Wants You to Remember You Will Die. There was a picture of Sister Alethea holding a tiny skull in her outstretched palm and smiling brightly as if it were like a newborn kitten in her hand. Memento mori is the practice of intentionally thinking about your own death as a means of appreciating the present. And a skull can serve as a visual reminder of the daily practice Sister thinks all of us could benefit from. Her path to the convent was anything but conventional. Think rebellious atheist who loved punk rock but came from a highly religious family, who spent her 20s volunteering and later working in Bay Area tech before finding her way back to the church. Now, her Catholic order, the Daughters of St. Paul, a.k.a. the hashtag media nuns, use social media and modern communication methods to spread the good word. They recently joined TikTok, which you'll hear about in our conversation. Sister Lathy and I talked about our society's avoidance around the topics of death and dying, how she has an ongoing gripe with God when she thinks about the world suffering, and our shared belief that by being reminded of our death, it's not morbid, but it will help us to be more mindful of everything that we have in the present. It's Sister Teresa Alethea Noble for No Time to Waste. I first heard about you. My dad's going to get credit. Uh, (laughs) Although it's only because he's on East Coast time and he got the New York Times two hours before me. Um, (laughs) But my dad had forwarded the New York Times article that came out um, in May uh, of this year that uh, was entitled, This is the Nun That Wants You to Remember That You Will Die, right? Mm-hmm. And my dad forwarded it to me and he goes, podcast guest, question mark? <laughs> I ended up reading it and learning about Memento Mori. Um, I learned about, you know, kind of your your non-traditional, as I've dug in now since, your non-traditional path to sisterhood, um, the fact that you are now um, <laughs> with a group, uh, you uh, you joined a convent and and live and, and work with a group of media, media nuns, your words, not mine. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, you know, you have sort of become the face of this memento mori practice, which we'll talk about, which is basically just taking time out every day to sort of think, pray, or reflect on the reality of your death um, and to do it regularly. But before I turn it to you, the reason why I so desperately wanted to talk to you was was this quote, if you don't mind me reading. Um, Sister Alethea rejects any suggestion that the practice of memento mori is morbid. Suffering and death are facts of life. Focusing only on the, quote, bright and shiny is superficial and inauthentic. Quote, 
We try to suppress the thought of death or escape it or run away from it because we think that's where we'll find happiness, she said. But it's actually in facing the darkest realities of life that we find light in them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Dad, you were right. It sounds like everything that I've dug into. You are a living embodiment of what No Time to Waste is all about. Um, because No Time to Waste starts with confronting mortality. Um, yeah. Can you share with me a little bit about maybe what I missed um, in that long introduction? Um, I, I mean, I think you, you covered a lot there. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited that you found it accessible. And I do think that there's something about this practice that is really universal and touches on the hearts of so many different people in different places and different experiences and backgrounds, because we all die. And um, different experiences and life uh, experiences and personalities can um, encourage certain people to think about it more, but, um, but we all die. So yeah, I think it's, I'm just excited that you found it accessible and found that message so accessible because I really I think it's a message for everybody. Well, I also think um, that you guys are, are very smart. You mentioned that you're the media nuns and, you know, I read a bit or heard you talk in the past about the sort of origins of you being directed or your, your crew um, being directed to use all of the modern day advances to spread the gospel and get the word out. Um, and I just think that's so smart because you are tapping into one, a younger market, right? Um, um, I just recently read, and I'm going to have to put a link in the show notes, that you and your sisters there um, did a TikTok video? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sister Bethany is the resident TikTok expert. I just I just do little um, cameos every once in a while uh, because we do prank videos. And that's like one of my favorite things to do. So one of our most famous is one where it involves me hiding in a cabinet and bursting out of it in the middle of something and scaring a sister to death. <laughs> So yes, we do TikTok too. Okay, like okay, so like this is kind of blowing my mind because I did go to Catholic school (laughs) until I was, uh, you know, thirteen or fourteen, and I have, I'm having a disconnect here, (laughs) trying to picture the nuns that were some of my teachers. in like prank wars and today on TikTok, um, I just, yeah, that's the, it's just kind of breaking my brain a little bit. Um, (laughs) But you know, it like how refreshing um, to, to picture a group of modern day nuns that are using modern day technology and modern day communication methods to spread their message out there. Um, I just think that's fantastic and totally challenges my personal perception of mm-hmm. 
what being a nun is or what being, you know, committing your life to God, like what that can look like. You know, I picture kind of the old school and you're telling me that, no, there's a, there's a new school order in town. Um, mm -hmm. Are you guys unique in a lot of the things that you're doing? Or are you finding that other um, convents and, uh, and groups are also starting to kind of follow in your footsteps? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of religious sisters um, are using modern media now, obviously, because the internet is ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. But I feel like um, we have always been a little kind of odd. And honestly, it's hard, it's hard for a lot of Catholics to understand what we do. It's just kind of strange to them that we work with modern media. But that really was our founder's idea, you know, at the turn of, of the 19th century. He just, mm. or, or the 20th century. He, I was um, like, the 19th? I was like, Right, the 20th. Yeah. <laughs> he was praying, and um, it was New Year's Eve, and mm -hmm. he just prayed for several hours, and he felt like God was saying, like, that this was the new mission for the church and that he was called to start this order. And he, he actually started... 10 different groups. He was just a very full of energy and fiery. And he actually was the one who inspired me to get a skull for my desk because he kept a skull on his desk and meditated on his death every day. So blessed James Alberione was the reason that this all started for me, really. Yeah, you have, um, you were, you were raised uh, Catholic, Christian? Mm -hmm. Catholic, yeah. Catholic. And when you were basically hitting your teenage years, something didn't jive and you weren't able to like really get behind the whole God existing thing. Right. Right. Yeah. I was um, about 14 when I decided that I was an atheist, but really I had had doubts about God's existence since I was five years old. I remember the first time I had a thought that God didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled a lot with the problem of suffering which um, I've thought about since then, how, how related to death the problem of suffering is, which is interesting to me now to think about. But so that was my central struggle was why do people suffer? Why do they die? Um, and how can God be good if that, if, if that is the case? It's, it's um, the strongest objection to God's existence that really yeah. exists. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a, a famous Catholic theologian, says that 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 this is the the most potent argument against God's existence is the suffering in the world. And when I was fourteen, I just got to a place where I, I had struggled with the problem so many times that I just thought, you know, I really I really am getting to the point where I just don't believe that God exists. So um, after that, I was an atheist for over a dozen years. Hmm. And were your parents pissed? I wouldn't say they were pissed, but they were very upset. Yeah. I mean, my dad was a, a theologian. He had studied Catholic theology and taught um, in universities and worked for Catholic dioceses. And so faith was super important to my family. So both of my parents were very upset. And I think they thought that it would be a phase. But as the years went by, they, I could see them growing more and more concerned that it wasn't going to be a phase. So you went through high school and you went through college, not yeah, connected to atheist. the church at all as an atheist. 
I'd love to know what you discovered in that 12 years. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard your kind of conversion moment, um, but from a logical place, um, not from a, a spirit place. How do you, how do you, how did you explain to yourself that question that pulled you away from the church to begin with? Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say that I don't, there are neat answers out there about the problem of suffering and there are responses to the problem of suffering, but logically I still, um, I still run into walls with it because I, I find it an, um, something that has been answered by my relationship with God, not so much by logic, even though there are logical responses to that. Whenever I hear logical responses to the problem of suffering, they just seem to fall short of reality to me. And I, I never find um, uh, uh, satisfaction in them, even though mm. to some extent I believe that they're true. But I just don't, I, I think that it's such a, a mystery that God has became man and suffered and died. And to me, that is the response to the problem of suffering more than any logical philosophical answer. This is making me think about things. I'm making, I'm just a natural uh, challenger. Question. Yeah, I am too. I'm, cur yeah. I'm curious, and it sounds like based yeah. on the research that I did on you, that you get that right. Um, I do, yeah. And by the way, my Catholic school was not really that into, um, <laughs> not really into that that personality trait of mine. Uh, it was <laughs> a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of like stop asking questions, you know. And mm, I just had questions about everything. Yeah, me too. I have that personality. And to be honest, I we have an annual retreat every year. It's about a week long and it's silent. And every single year I start out my retreat by shaking my fist at God about the problem of suffering. So sometimes people expect because I'm a religious sister that I'm going to have some neat, simple answer for them and some wisdom that's going to make them understand the problem of suffering. And it's, 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 I'm sorry that I just can't provide that, but I can't because I still wrestle with God about the problem of suffering. But I do it. it the, the only difference now is that as, as someone who's not an atheist, I do it with God and I wrestle with God. Um, about it and I bring it to him I bring him all of my anger about the injustice in the world and the suffering of innocent people and and I just um, lay it before his feet in prayer whereas before I just stayed angry yeah may I ask um, what is the prayer when you when you like because I um, I get ragey I get angry um, I have questioned and and been like, I, I think I like lived a really generous, good life. Like I, like, what did I do wrong? Like, how, how did this happen? And, and, you know, being told repeatedly, like this cancer and it's, and it's progression, um, is, is not your fault. And I've been angry at God, the universe, whatever is, 
uh, running things because it's not me. Um, and it, I, I like hearing that even you who've committed yourself, you know, are, are, are angry sometimes and, and don't mm -hmm. understand. And you're able to take that and say, I'm angry. Like, here it is. What it, you just said, and then you would pray. Like, wh what's the follow-up prayer to that? Um, honestly, the anger is, is my prayer for a, a big part of it is my just yelling. <laughs> really? You know? and I, oh, yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's the, that's what I love about God. Um, and, and my belief in like a personal God is that yeah. God loves me and he just loves my tendency to ask questions and to be mad about things and to wrestle about and wrestle with him with things. I mean, there's sometimes that I hear in prayer kind of the response that Job gets, you know, my thoughts are so high above your thoughts. I created the foundations of the world. Like, why do you think that you could possibly understand this? So in some ways, I kind of get put in my place in prayer. But it's in this, like, uh, it's not in a dictatorial kind of uh, authoritative, um, you know, how dare you question me? It's more like a just, I love you, and I made you to question and to ask and to wrestle and to want justice and to want goodness and to want people not to suffer. I mean, right. that is a heart of love. So um, I just bring it to him, and he helps. He, I think he helps, um, like, he, I don't think he makes that anger go away, but he helps to soften it, and he helps me to feel it in relationship with him and to feel the call you know, in, in the midst of my anger to, mm. to, you know, to love him and to love others, which is something that I can control, whereas I can't control the suffering of, of the world. Okay. Two but things. also to trust oh, that he brings ahead. good. Like oh, he, okay. he brings good out of suffering. And I have experienced that in my own life in the worst and most terrible suffering and trauma and tragedy of my life. He will bring goodness out of the blackness and the darkness. And I don't know how he does that, but he reaches into the mire of, of my suffering and he changes me for the better somehow. Um, so through those experiences, I've learned to trust God more and more. So from my challenging self, and I mean no disrespect, it's more mm -hmm. just I'm, I want to get in your head and I want to understand Um has it always, is there, has there ever been a time when you thought of God in the female form or what's, what would you say to someone that says, I believe in God. I am, I am a devout Catholic and I just don't see God as a him. I see it as a divine female spirit. Mm -hmm. what, what would your response be to be would be to that? Um, so the Catholic catechism actually says that that God has no gender. I mean, God is above and beyond gender. So when I use the pronouns he for God, I do that not because I think of God as a man, although Jesus is the incarnate God, so he is a man. Totally. Um, but that doesn't mean that God in in his divinity is a man. Um, and so, 
I use the the he pronouns just because that is what God has revealed himself, mm-hmm. how he has revealed himself to us through scripture. And Jesus taught us the our father. So when I use those pronouns, I use them kind of in a light way, not not a way that says like God and his divinity is male, but um, he's revealed those pronouns to me. So that those are the ones that I use. Yeah, that's super helpful. And again, all I'm trying to do with these conversations is try and find uh, a common a common thread that can enable more people to relate to the conversations. So without further ado, I would like to get into, for uh, the education of our audience, Memento Mori. Um, and I could mm-hmm. I could talk about it, but I would much rather hear it from you. Um, and I, I, you know, this is taking my ego out of it because I, I want to I, I want to show you how much research I did. Um, and uh, instead, I'm putting my ego aside and asking you to explain to our audience what Memento Mori uh, means and, and kind of the journey. Mm-hmm. Well, so I put a skull on my desk about four years ago and started to meditate on my death daily. And I didn't, I honestly didn't know much about Memento Mori. I used that hashtag on Twitter. And so that's why it became a thing. But um, when I tweeted about it, a lot of people were interested in what I was tweeting about. And they asked me questions and started to get skulls for their own desks. And they started asking me questions about Memento Mori. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I guess I need to do some research into this. So the reason I had done it was because of our founder. He had a skull on his desk. but And I thought, you know, he was kind of an odd guy. So I thought maybe this was just something that he did. <laughs> but as I researched it, it was actually something that, that a lot of, that was actually very normal in Catholic tradition, especially for many centuries. Uh, skull symbolism, especially in, in European churches or and, and even in Latin America and all all over the world, really, it's it's very um, American. Uh, American churches don't have the same sim- rich symbolism as um, in in churches all in other parts of the world. But I just started to look into the tradition, and um, and then as I was going to mass every day, I started to listen to the readings differently, and I started to hear exhortations in scripture like all throughout scripture, exhortations to remember your death. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen them before or thought of them before. And I honestly, I think I probably repressed them to some degree. Mm-hmm. But I, they just started to jump out at me every single day. Every single day I would hear them. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is all throughout scripture. Beginning with um, Genesis, when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden God says, remember your dust and to dust you shall return. And those are the words that, that Catholics hear every Ash Wednesday when they get tr- ashes traced on their foreheads. Remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful phrase. Yeah. And that is a powerful day for Catholics. Like people who don't go to church any other day will go to church on Ash Wednesday because there's something about that day that just really moves people. Because I, it just, and I think that's something that that this practice really, why it's moved me is because it gets to the core of everything. 
You know, yeah. we're going to die. And that is something that is, that is the most important context of our life. We're going to die. And it changes everything. Like, amen, sister. Literally. Amen, <laughs> sister. Um, now, when ha, have you gotten pushback from either others that are in, in the church or outside of for the, you know, sadness and morbidity of how dare you bring up death, which is something that we as humans, uh-uh, we just don't want to go there because mm-hmm. it brings up our existential anxiety, right? And goes counter to our survivalism, which is built into our biology. Um, have Do you get members of the church that sort of fight back against that practice and say, we don't need to be, let's not ruffle anybody's feathers. Let's just keep that for when those things happen. Or have you received mm-hmm. re- like support from the church? I mean, it really depends. I mean, a lot of people have responded positively because I think um, in the church and outside of the church, we can ignore the most difficult topics and the most difficult subjects. And I think people appreciate that, that I'm willing to talk about such a difficult topic. But, um, but people also react very strongly to it sometimes and um, very negatively sometimes about the skull symbolism, not really understanding the, the deep tradition of that in the church and associ- the association that people have with other things, um, skulls and like evil. And, but um, that's actually something that I point out to people when they react strongly about the skull symbolism, as I say that the fact that you associate evil with a skull is um, a sign that meditation on death in the context of our faith would be helpful to you. Because as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that our bodies will be raised from the dead and that our skulls will pop out of the grave and and become a a body again. You know, we're going to have our bodies back in heaven. So um, skulls are actually a sign of the resurrection if you look at them through the lens of faith for, for a Christian. So um, I think, a, but I, I think a lot of people think about death in a very, um, even if they're Christian, I think about, they think about it in a very atheistic way, materialistic way, which can, um, which can cause them to think about it negatively. And not to say that all atheists think of death in a negative way, but it, it can cause people to do that or to think about it kind of in a nihilistic, fatalistic way. Um, and so I just, I, yeah. And I also, people just think it's morbid to think about death, but I'm just, I'm of, I'm the kind of personality that thinks like, this is a fact of life. Like (laughs) if you're going to avoid the facts of life, then uh, what's the point of living? So the positive and the negative, you, you can't really feel the positives of life without actually entering into and experiencing the negatives. And that's, that for me, that has, um, death has, paradoxically uh, led me to greater, the thought of death has led me to greater hope and greater joy in my life, which I'm sure that you have experienced as well. I have for sure. Um, again, it's, it's not a path that I would have chosen. Um, but yes, I, I believe that 
it is through the awareness and acknowledgement of all of our mortality. I have been forced to grieve my situation. Um, and as a result, though, the, the range of emotions that I have been able to access, um, I never would have dreamed that life could be this full of love and beauty. It's when you acknowledge and really think about the fact that, yes, you're going to die. We all are. Um, that it enables you to look at your own life and go, wait, what am I doing? Am I just going mm -hmm. through the motions? Or am I really being precious with this time I have and spending it in the way that matters most to me? I don't know if you've ever um, been with someone who has passed, who has died, um, mm -hmm. and sort of, have you ever sat with someone in those final, final moments out of curiosity? Yeah, um, I haven't been with someone in the moment of their death, but mm -hmm. I've been at the deathbed of quite a few of our sisters. Yeah. And it's a, a really holy place to be. Yeah, I, you know, I have talked to palliative care nurses and doctors, and I've talked to death doulas, talked to the rabbi um, who's shepherded so many people across that plane. And so far, unless everybody's lying to me, which I don't think they are, um, so far, everyone has said that people were they're not anxious they're not scared they're they're actually at peace um mm. i don't know what I, what do you say to me when i go but sister i'm scared i'm scared mm -hmm. not necessarily for the unknown or for the what happens after um, or whether or not I'll go to heaven. I would definitely go to heaven, by the way. I feel like I would like that's pretty much locked. Um, <laughs> but but I'm scared. Like how how would mm -hmm. you respond to someone who's technically dying? Um, yeah. I don't know. What, any anything to bring comfort? I don't know if it will bring comfort, but I think it's totally normal to be scared. And yeah. I think anyone who says that, you know, that you're not supposed to be scared or that it's somehow like an, a higher level of being to not be scared, I just disagree with that. I think that it's, it's, um, it's normal to love your life. Your life is good, you know, and it's normal to be scared of dying and losing your life. And that's one thing that um, I say a lot in the practice of Memento Mori, because a lot of people will come up to me and say, you know, sister, I've been practicing meditation on death and I don't, I am not scared of death anymore. And I, I usually say, well, maybe you just need to do it a little bit more. <laughs> I just don't believe you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know that some people get to that point, like maybe God just gives us special grace to some people, but I think the majority of people will never lose a fear of death because death is scary. 
It is scary to think of our, our soul being torn from our body. Like, it's just not normal. Torn. No, that's not. How about, like, exit? No, God, no, no, not helping. More anxiety, causing more well, anxiety. It is. It, like, it is supposed to be scary. I think that's the thing is. I, I don't I don't like this idea that that death is always peaceful because the truth is it's not. I mean I I've seen a lot of our, my sisters in their death process and they they call it death throes for a reason. Like it, it is scary and they feel fear and some of them are very peaceful, but the, uh, all of them go through at least a period where they're just very frightened. And I think that's normal. There's a book called A Time to Die um, by Nicholas Diot. And it's, uh, he went to Trappist, or I, I don't know if they were all Trappist, but he goes to um, monasteries all over Europe and he visits monks and asks them about dying and how the process of dying has been in their monastery. And the thing I really appreciate about that book is he does not romanticize it. He doesn't say, you know, these these monks, because they've dedicated their life to God and to silence and contemplation, they didn't they had these deaths that were totally different than the normal person. But in reality, like he he, he um very truthfully speaks of the differing ways that people die, you know, and it goes back to that problem of suffering. It's not like special people get special deaths you know it's like we there are there is a closeness to god in the midst of our suffering and even in the midst of our fear of death yeah i don't know if that necessarily made me feel better sister Um, (laughs) okay but uh i appreciate your honesty in it i do and i'm surprised though a little bit because if talking about the the sisters that have passed um, in your posse, um, I would think if you're like, I'm definitely going to heaven and heaven is going to be awesome and I'm going to see everybody there and maybe I'll meet God, maybe I won't. I uh, I'm I'm super I'm super nervous about it, but I think it's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. That you would have even more. Uh, ease with in that transition because you're so you're just uh so committed to that idea of what happens after like i don't know i but the thing is i think for me what meditation on death is is um it's something that instead of bringing me to a place of like easy faith it brings me to the to my weakness and, and to my fears and to my anxieties and to my all all the things that make me need god hmm. um and I, i'm going to need god even at the moment of my death i'm not i'm not going to be you know i'm not going to just not have no use for him <laughs> i'm going to yeah. need him in my humanity and in my weakness and i I don't know what it's like for other people, but I, I just know myself and I know even at, at, on my deathbed after a life of dedicating my life, my life to God, I'm going to need that gift of, of faith and the grace of that to, um, cause in the back of my mind, I'm always going to have that atheist. That's like, well, are you really going to go to heaven? Cause I'm not quite right. so sure. Right. <laughs> 
and I think we all have that because we're human and we doubt and we're weak and we just we struggle and I think that's normal um I want to be respectful of your time is there anything anything else you wish people knew or you would want people to know or any anything else that you'd want to leave with with listeners I think I think the main thing in my ministry is um, not to not to give people the impression that my meditation on death has made me, you know, less human and less, you know, anxious and less. And in some ways, yes, I I have less fear of death. I, I can say that definitely. But I, but at the same time, the the biggest gift of this meditation for me has been um, coming. It, in touch with my humanity and my need for God and my weakness. And I, I think that is, that is the power of this practice. It's not in kind of becoming strong and and kind of faking it and Mm -hmm. forging ahead, but it's actually in, in coming into touch with the fact that I, I'm a weak being and I need God's grace and I need his love and, that is what carries me through. That's truly what, what will carry me through. And that's, you know, some people could think of that as a negative realization, but for me, mm. it's so positive because it's really a surrender into that power and love of God. Right. Wow. This has been incredible. I would encourage anyone, and I've already been there, and I can't wait to stock up. Um, if you go to pursuedbytruth.com, um, there is more information on um, uh, Memento Mori. Um, there's a store with uh, some fantastic books that have been written um, by Sister Teresa and some of her uh, fellow uh, nuns. Um and there's just a wealth of, of information on there where I learned a lot. Um, but I would encourage you guys to check that out. I'm not on the Twitters, um, but um, it sounds like Twitter is where you got your start. Um, and what's your what's your Twitter handle, sister? Yeah, Pursued by Truth. Oh, look at you. Consistent brand identity. Fantastic. <laughs> um Thank you so much, as I mentioned in the beginning. Um, time is is everything, um, and it is more valuable to me um, than anything else. So uh, I so, so appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for inviting me on, Allison. What did you think of the episode? If you liked it, I would really appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts and left like a one-sentence review. You'd be amazed at how that can help introduce the No Time to Waste podcast to new audiences. I really appreciate it.